0: I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on Theatre and the Origins of the Modern Public. One of the things about any form
1: of theatre that it's got to grapple with, one direction or the other, is that one of its crucial components is quite unpredictable and quite messy, the audience.
0: In London, in the age of Elizabeth, the audience for theater underwent a dramatic change. For centuries, theater had been an art that was closely tied to religion and to popular traditions of seasonal festivity. Performances were largely homemade and took place on pageant wagons, in churches and inn yards, or in some improvised location. Then, starting in 1576, Something like our modern theater began to spring up. Professional companies of actors with their own buildings, writers, and repertoires, playing every day to paying customers. This theater, by the very terms of its existence, had to negotiate a new and unprecedented relationship with its audiences. It had to appeal to the private people who became its public. And it did so by embodying their hopes and fears, their concerns and their anxieties. From this new form of address, most fully perfected in Shakespeare's plays, there grew a new relationship between the public and the private. Shakespeare comes along and he says, the word
2: private means nobody. A private person is a nobody. He knows that. That's what it means for early moderns. He says, let's think about that. And let me show you that what counts as public is always going to be, in the first instance, private. And that the answer to the question, who are you, is going to be no answer at all, unless it's fundamentally anchored in private experience and private feeling. So, Shakespeare reimagines publicity as a hybrid of privacy and publicity.
0: How the theater makes the private public is our subject today on Ideas. The program continues David Cayley's series on the origins of the modern public. Here's David
3: Cayley. In the summer of 2003, a group of scholars from various branches of literary and historical study gathered in a Montreal hotel to talk about where our modern conception of the public comes from. They were there at the invitation of Paul Yackman, a professor of English at McGill and a specialist in Shakespeare. Yackman had been pondering for some time the question of how the theater influenced its audiences, and he had come to the conclusion that the answer lay not just in individual plays, but in broad structural features of the world of the Elizabethan playhouse. The emergence of a competitive market in theatrical entertainments, and thus of a new kind of dialogue between the producers and consumers of the cultural goods the theater was selling, the ways in which going to plays changed people's thoughts about the world around them. Out of this constellation, Yaknan thought, a new kind of public was being created. He called his colleagues to Montreal to discuss this idea. The result beginning in 2005 with an ambitious five-year research project called Making Publics." I've based this idea series on its findings. As the Making Publics project has gone on, Paul Yaknan has continued to think about how the theater contributes to the transformation in the meaning of the word public that occurs in Europe between the 16th and 18th centuries. Public places have always existed. But public persons, up to the 18th century, were those whose rank or office entitled them to an opinion about public matters. The rest were to keep quiet. In 1672, for example, the English king, Charles II, issued a proclamation commanding his loving subjects not to intermeddle with the affairs of state and government. A second proclamation, two years later, condemned licentious talking of state and government. And yet, within a century of Charles' proclamation, the collective opinion of private, otherwise unempowered people was recognized and celebrated as the public opinion before which rulers must bow. This change, in Paul Yachinan's opinion, did not happen all at once, but can be traced all the way back to the 16th century. And Shakespeare's theater, he thinks, played a part in it by making the private public in a new way. We talked about this at his home recently, and he began his illustration of this idea with a contemporary example, the performance of Shakespeare's plays in prisons. The story that
2: the prisoners tell is really quite extraordinary and important. And uh, what happens is, in the United States, in Kentucky, and in Britain, under the Leadership of Bruce Wall, people take Shakespeare into the prisons and they involve inmates in rehearsing and performing Shakespeare's plays. And what the inmates say about this is that it allows them to come to terms with what they have done, to take on what they have done, and to take responsibility for what they have done, and to speak. That coming to terms in public language. It's quite remarkable and moving how they are able to do this. It's not just that Shakespeare gives them a public voice that they've never had, an authoritative language that they've never had. It hugely enhances their private life as well. So these inmates stand up in front of audiences of trustees and family members. And they perform Hamlet. There's a wonderful uh, recording of a scene from Hamlet, performed at a prison in the States. Uh, And a man does the ghost speech in Hamlet. And it's one of the most extraordinary performances of the speech I've ever heard. It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And then the interviewer says to him, Wow, that was really amazing. I I was you put so much into that. Could you talk a little bit about where that came from? And he says, I'm in here because I killed a man. I took a man's life away. And when I'm speaking the speech of Hamlet's father's ghost, I'm channeling the spirit of the man I killed.
3: Prisoners playing Shakespeare. Find a way to give private experience public relevance. And this is what Paul Yaknin thinks was going on as far back as 1600, when Hamlet was first performed at the Globe Theater. Privacy was being reevaluated. Part of what helped him work this idea out, Yaknin says, was his dialogue with the writings of philosopher Hannah Arendt.
2: What Arendt says is she says, look, The word private in the first place is related to privation. The fundamental meaning of private in antiquity is privative. It means to be without something. To be private is to be living in a dream of one's own imagination. It has no reality. If you want to be real, you have to be a public person. And she uses this word, you have to appear to others. And she says, she has these passages that are suffused with intellectual radiance. She says, the primordial human question, which, by which she means the question that makes a person a human being, is who are you? You have to answer that question. You have to have the courage to answer that question, to take on your humanity. And so in her book, The Human Condition, she says... The private is the sphere of privation. It's the sphere at which we are animals. We only live to eat and eat to work so that we can eat some more and we reproduce, we reproduce and then we die. We leave nothing behind. It's only in the public world that we are human where we endure beyond our own lifetimes and we do something that matters. Well, she got the private wrong, because in order to understand what makes the... and the way she explains the public so deeply beautiful. But in order to explain it, she needed to go back and think again about the private. And for Shakespeare, but not just for Shakespeare, for Montaigne, for example, it is so much about the private. What gives public speech authority in modernity? It's the private, it's my life, it's my experience. And Shakespeare is one of the great artists of this new publicity, which is a hybrid of the private and the public. And the figure of this hybridity is Hamlet. Hamlet is a character who is constantly seeking to bring his private self, his thoughts, his secrets into public view. And the whole play is about the difficulty of coming out. And he creates a kind of model for us. Um, It's a wonderful theatrical model. It really does have traction in the modern world. Uh, You can see that if you think about why Canadian politicians have so much difficulty gaining a kind of foothold in the emotional lives of Canadians. Trudeau's an exception, I think. René Levesque someone who in, in Quebec history is someone who was able to speak to people from his own private place. So
3: Arendt tells me why it's important. Hannah Arendt offered Paul Yakman a revelatory account of the public as the realm in which people disclose who they are. But she was wrong, he thinks, to pit the private so sharply against the public. Shakespeare, for him, provides the necessary correction. He invents, with others, what Yachnin considers a new form of publicity. The word has been somewhat corrupted in the contemporary world where publicity has become a product, but Yachnin is trying to reclaim the uncorrupted sense of publicity as a genuine disclosure, a making public. And what makes Shakespeare's account of publicity something new? is the way in which it is informed
2: by the private. Shakespeare comes along and he says, the word private means nobody. A private person is a nobody. He knows that. That's what it means for early moderns. He says, let's think about that. And he comes to this, of course, with a long tradition of religious thinking that is about the person's soul. And he's someone who's fairly well read uh, I think, in uh, religious writing uh, such as Calvin, but more important for Shakespeare, he is an avid reader of Montaigne. And Montaigne is one of the great writers of private publicity. And together, I think, Montaigne and Shakespeare fundamentally reimagine publicity. And I, it's so I love this because uh, I always think of Arendt in conversation with Shakespeare. And Shakespeare always having the better of Arendt. Of course, that's just because I'm not an Arendtian, but a Shakespearean. And Shakespeare answers the question, who are you, by several hundred years before Arendt wrote the book, saying, let's think about your theory about the separation of publicity and privacy. And let me show you that what counts as public is always going to be, in the first instance, private. And that the answer to the question, who are you, is going to be no answer at all unless it's fundamentally anchored in private experience and private feeling. So Shakespeare reimagines publicity as a hybrid of privacy and publicity. And it's a playful reimagining. He knows that publicity is something that belongs to the court, to the queen, to the social elite the court of aldermen and the mayor of the city of London. It's not something that belongs to the theatre. That's one of the reasons that Prospero toward the end of uh, The Tempest says we've imagined this wonderful world this globe but it's nothing but a dream. At one point in uh, The Human Condition Hannah Arendt says as if she's been reading Shakespeare private life is the most beautiful thing, but at the end it fades away like a dream and has no part in reality. Shakespeare knows that too, but he knows the deeper irony that true publicity is always going to have its anchor in the dreamlikeness of privacy. So Arendt's important for me because she provides me with an explanation of the urgency of the questions we ask in the project. Why is this important? And to my mind it's important because it gives to early modern ordinary people, people I've called nobodies, and my colleagues have said there were far fewer nobodies in early modernity than you think, which I'm I'm sure is true. It's not that people were nobodies. People always had a sense of who they were. But it's against the grand sphere of public life, which belonged to the court, 95, 98, 99% of English people were nobodies. And what Shakespeare's drama gave them, if only in a playful way, was a sense that they were somebodies and that they mattered. And since what Shakespeare is doing by making it public is not changing politics, but changing the conditions under which politics are made, he changes the ground upon which political change happens and makes possible people imagining themselves, and this, of course, is going to allow people to really take a kind of political action. And this is multifaceted, because he's also creating languages, new languages for
3: public political analysis. Why does he make them matter if I'm in the audience at a performance of Hamlet? In what way is it making me matter to myself? The Prince has a secret
2: that no one in his world, except eventually Horatio, can grasp. And no one can grasp, not even Horatio, whom Hamlet loves, uh, not even Horatio can grasp Hamlet's true soul. Hamlet speaks to us individually, even when there's 3,000 of us at the Globe Theatre. He speaks to each of us individually. He says, now I am alone. To 3,000 people, he says, now I am alone. If only I could tell people how I feel. If only you knew how much I loved my father. I would feel fulfilled. I would feel that my my task was on its way to being done. Because it's not just that I want to take vengeance. I want the act to be meaningful. I could kill Claudius. People would say... Well, of course he killed Claudius. He wants to be king. What do you expect of a prince? But Hamlet wants people to know that the killing of Claudius is just, not just an act of violence in the pursuit of power. How can he do this? We'd have to know Hamlet. Well, nobody in his world, with the possible exception of Horatio, can know Hamlet in that way. But everybody in the theater can know Hamlet that way. And he needs
3: us. He can't see us, but he needs us. Paul Yaknan demonstrated this point, that Hamlet needs his audience, in a workshop I watched him do with actor Albert Schultz, the artistic director of Toronto's Soul Pepper Theatre. Yaknan took the same speech he has been talking about, Hamlet's famous, Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, soliloquy, which begins, Now I am alone and he asked Schultz to perform it as if he actually were alone. An awkward and essentially impossible assignment, as Schultz obligingly demonstrated. Then Yaknan asked him to repeat the speech with new directions.
2: Now, do it this way. Now, you don't know the audience is there, but somehow you have an intuition they're there. So in some way, you're speaking to yourself, because supposed to be a, it's supposed to be a soliloquy, you're all by yourself. To some degree, it's to them, but they're a kind of invisible addressee, a non-existent addressee. And he did it that way, and it became crystal clear that what Hamlet was doing, what Albert was doing, was fundamental to how Shakespeare writes the play and fundamental to how Shakespeare reimagines publicity. Because it's about the private coming out into the public, And galvanizing this group of people, in Shakespeare's theater would have been 3,000 people, galvanizing this group into a community, but each one recruited at the level of a private relationship with the prince. Each one is there going, yes, Hamlet, yes, I'm with you, I can hear you, Hamlet. I'm on your side. None of them are saying that, of course, because it's not modern theatrical decorum to do that. I can imagine in, in Shakespeare's theatre at the Globe that there would indeed have been people saying that because they were more used to speaking out. But I learned by working with Albert that it's fundamental to the, to the way Shakespeare structures character and audience-character relationship this way of reimagining. It's, it's built into the operation of the drama, how he reimagines the private and the public. So to answer your question, why does he care about it? He cares about it because he's a playwright and because playwrights want their plays to work. He's working with a great actor, with a great company of actors. They expect it of him. And indeed, if he fails to provide it, they'll find someone else. So it's in his professional interest to do this. So at the level of crafting his drama, it matters to him that it matters to you as a member of the audience, that you matter to the play, uh, and you're recruited to the play by the way the drama operates.
3: It's an important point for Paul Yakman that Shakespeare is obeying a commercial and professional, as well as an artistic imperative, in creating the communion between actor, play, and audience that he's been talking about. For Yaknan, commerce is not, as some writers would have it, a corrupting influence on an initially pristine public sphere. It's there at its inception.
2: The commercial theatrical scene in England is, all, is, a, is a competitive scene. Um, and they're competing for market share. Uh, Henslow is uh, running one company, and Burbage and the other stockholders, including Shakespeare, are running another company. And then there are other companies coming and going during the period. And it's highly competitive. And so the first thing is that they're, they're competing for market share. The constant demand for new material, uh, which creates opportunities for young people to write for the theatre. And it creates novelty as a
3: key feature of the theatre. Shakespeare and his company needed to please their audience. And one way in which they did this was by addressing questions that were on people's minds. One such question was religion. England, first in the 1530s and finally in 1559, had been made Protestant by its rulers. But many of its people remained Catholic, and many others felt the ambivalence of knowing that their ancestors had belonged to a condemned and outlawed faith, including, perhaps, Shakespeare.
2: His father was a Catholic. As far as we know, his father died in the what they call the Old Faith. Uh, Shakespeare seems to have been a Protestant, although there is continuing debate about that. And there's a scene in Hamlet where the ghost of Hamlet's father appears he comes back from a place which isn't named but which is characterized as a place where the sins of his of his mortal life are purged and cleansed away so it sounds like purgatory and purgatory is one of the central bones of contention between the catholic church and the protestant reformation because what Martin luther said is there is no purgatory It's something that's been manufactured by the Catholic Church as a moneymaker. As as a matter of fact, what there is are heaven and hell, period. There's no intermediate stage where you can go if you've been kind of okay, but not good enough for heaven. So to have a ghost coming from a place where he's being purged, which sounds like purgatory, uh, is to identify the ghost as Catholic that it's a ghost associates it with the past. And Hamlet, his son, has just returned from Wittenberg. And as any Elizabethan would have known, Wittenberg is the very place where Luther nailed his 95 Theses that kicked off the Protestant Reformation. What is going on here?
3: What is going on is that a Protestant son is confronting a Catholic father as Shakespeare scholar Stephen Greenblatt pointed out in his book Hamlet in Purgatory. And this is an important subtext in Hamlet's agonies about what to do and what to believe. Paul Yakman, in his Shakespeare class at McGill, has two of his students play the scene in which the ghost tells Hamlet that he has been cruelly murdered in his orchard by the man who has succeeded him as king, his brother Claudius. But first, yaknan asked the class to divide into religious factions, some to be zealous Protestants, some to be merely conforming Protestants who still feel anxious and guilty about their Catholic forebears, and some to be secret Catholics. And then he questions them about their reaction to this scene. The young man put his hand up.
2: Uh, I said, um, how do you feel? He said, I feel okay. Good scene. It did very well. I said, "Do you feel uh, anxiety, stress?" He said, "No." I said, "Tell me, what of what faith are you?" He said, "I'm a Protestant." I said, "Uh huh. You're one of those Protestants who have no kind of complex feelings about your parents." He said, "No, I have deep and relentless guilt about my father. My father died a Catholic, just like Hamlet's father," and I said. Don't you feel guilty when you watch this scene? He said, no, 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 not at all. I said, why? He said, well, this takes place in Denmark. I'm English. And at first I just thought he was being kind of flippant. And then I realized he'd put his finger on something fundamental in what Shakespeare's doing, and fundamental to the difference between religious religious community and public, attenuating, putting distance between real feelings, which fiction always does, and responses, is a way of creating a public where there was religious community. All these people together in the theatre, in Shakespeare's Globe, watching Hamlet, some of them no doubt Catholic, some Protestant, some Protestant, like this young man was Protestant, would feel a variety of feelings, but all of it attenuated by the fiction of a fiction uh, that this is merely a story, that it's ancient, that it takes place in Denmark, but all of them sharing together in an experience in the fiction in which they bring their private feelings into a kind of conversation that is rooted in the action. And that's how Shakespeare takes religious confession or religious community and begins to fashion it into a public.
3: Religious confession in 16th century Europe was often an occasion for war and massacre. England got off relatively lightly compared to the continent, but many in Shakespeare's audience would have remembered the Protestant martyrs burned at the stake when Queen Mary returned England to Catholicism in the 1550s. To fashion a public, in Paul Yaknan's view, was to thin out, to attenuate, these violent and uncompromising emotions, and thus to create the possibility of conversation. The theater invited identification with its characters. Yes, Hamlet. But at the same time, it created distance. It was, after all, just a play. And because of this combination of distance and identification, Jachman says, the theater and the arts generally create a richer more complex idea of the public than is imagined in some theories of the public sphere. Public sphere theory has been
2: criticized for imagining the public sphere as a place where people go to be citizens, but where they have to leave behind uh, what makes them special as individuals their sexuality, their religion, their race, their gender. They enter, as classic liberal theory has it, as citizens and not as particularly situated individuals. If you think about the, sh- the public that Shakespeare creates, it's both a public, a place where people can enter into conversation about things that matter, and where they don't have to leave behind, and in fact where they're forcefully reminded not to leave behind who they are as particularly situated individuals. So it's a public that has a kind of place for the individual identities of people, including the affective dimension of that individuality, and also a place where there's a a kind of opportunity for public kinds of discourse and exchange. So for the theatre, it's very much about taking these matters of social and political concern out of their particular embedment within the usual forms of political expression and putting them in fictional terms so that they become available for attenuated kinds of conversation that are public-making.
0: You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137 and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley.
3: The theater makes publics, in Paul Yachnan's view, by moving intractable and divisive issues into a fictional space where they can be considered and discussed. All the arts do this in one way or another, but the theater is unique in actually assembling its public in one place. Paintings or books can be enjoyed alone. The theater doesn't really exist until its audience assembles. Stephen Mullaney is a colleague of Paul Yachinan's in the Making Publics Research Group, a professor of English at the University of Michigan, and the author of The Place of the Stage, a book which is interested, among other things, in the actual places where plays were performed. In Elizabethan England, the audience sat or stood in large open-air amphitheaters like The Globe, which was built by the company in which Shakespeare had a stake in 1599. In the 1990s, a replica was constructed near the original site, and the process of tuning the sound in the new building gave a wonderful illustration, Mullaney says, of what the audience meant to Shakespeare's theater. When they were designing that,
1: and they were trying to a certain extent to be as faithful as they could know to be, uh, because there's a lot we don't know about those theaters, the originals. Uh, So they were using old growth oak for the timbers. They were trying to, it mattered to get the, the auditory qualities of the theater downright. You know, They wanted the, the, the sound to resonate the way it did because there have always been big questions about how these actors deliver their lines to this, these large auditoriums. They're much larger than the New Globe. Elizabethan amphitheater seated 2,500 to 3,000 people. Okay. Uh, this seats a fraction of that. I don't know what the numbers are. When they were almost done, they brought in some sample audiences and had the company run through some sample scenes. And they were testing out the space for a lot of different things, but one of the things they discovered, they weren't sure what they wanted to do with the grounding space, with the open area for standing in the theater. So they tried scenes with sample audiences with nobody there, with people just sitting back in the galleries. And the actors almost couldn't perform. They said, they had no sense of audience, had no connection with the audience. They they felt like no matter how they projected, they could not connect. They could not cover that vast space, empty space. So they brought in more people, had the ground leads, allowed the ground leads to sit, though, because they figured, well, it's going to be a long play when we're doing this for real. They're going to want to sit down. Let well, them sit down. The actors, again, said, it's not quite as bad, but it's still, it's dead space. As theaters go, it's dead space. It's, really and it interferes with everything to do with being an actor uh, including remembering your lines (laughs) but it definitely interferes with being in character with with catching your cues with with uh, being outside of your own thought processes and totally in in the moment of performance the way you have to be when you're an actor they gave the signal for the groundlings to stand up and an actor involved with that test moment said, it was like turning on an electric light switch. It went from dark to light. <laughs> it went from dead to live. It went from totally impossible as a theatrical space to energized and engaging, and it just it ramped them up rather than damped them
3: down. Audiences are crucial to every form of theater, but they can be of very different kinds. The ancient Greek drama was central to the life of the city. It sometimes enacted tragic conflict, but it was also an essential form of civic solidarity. The medieval religious drama enfolded its spectators in a story of salvation. The theater that flourished in London in the late 16th and early 17th century was very differently situated it took place outside the walls of the old city. Many of the pillars of the city establishment considered it a threat to civic order. Satan's synagogue, one anti-theatrical writer called it, and its audience lacked the consensus that had underpinned earlier forms of theater. Elizabethan society was divided by many things, but above all, in Stephen Mullaney's view, by religion. He lays great stress on the traumatic memory of the events of the 1550s, when Elizabeth's half-sister Mary had restored Roman Catholicism and many Protestants had been martyred.
1: Protestants who refused to recant were condemned by ecclesiastical courts and then turned over to secular authorities and burnt at the stake. There were 500-some-odd Protestants burned at the stake under Mary's reign and these were events that happened in communities where everybody knew one another and where the religious controversies of the day meant that some people watching this awful event take place before their eyes a man or a woman or a group of men or women Tied to faggots, um, the fire lit beneath them, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. The descriptions in Fox's Book of Martyrs are horrifying to read. But these were communities which were as diverse as the audiences at Elizabethan plays, where for some people this was a horrifying moment, a moment of martyrdom. For other people, this was a necessary affirmation of religious doctrine. For some people, it undoubtedly was a moment of zealous joy. It's a situation where one could have imagined in the past a unified reaction among the people you know very well, who've lived the same kind of life you've lived. But instead, watching the same thing, experiencing, in quotes, the same thing, you're experiencing something very different. There's no commonality of experience anymore. What horrifies me and brings me to tears, or worse, makes you feel good. <laughs> That's the level of division, of visceral division and uncertainty and irresolution for people in society that uh, we're going to the theaters
3: a decade or two later. The persecution of English Protestants ended with Queen Mary's death in 1558. She was succeeded by her half-sister, Elizabeth, who restored the Protestant ascendancy, but by a policy quite opposite to Mary's.
1: In order to establish a stable Protestant state, rather than go her half-sister's route, to try and seek out and smell out and root out differing opinions and differing beliefs and you know have burnings at the stake and whatnot. Elizabeth went a very different route. She decided that the way to establish a certain stability and social order was to allow a kind of don't ask, don't tell religious and political policy to be the law of the land. If he went to Protestant service and went through the outward motions of conformity, um, that was okay. It was a society, in other words, which uh, was founded on the assumption that anyone you didn't know could be of quite different
3: beliefs, of extraordinary difference than you. These differences would necessarily have been represented, Stephen Mullaney thinks, in theater audiences. The stranger sitting across from you or standing beside you in the pit might well have views that were antagonistic to yours. What has to have been the case with what we know about how
1: fractured and secretive about its fractures Elizabethan society was is that in any given performance of Hamlet, the play in Elizabethan times, the audience you know contained a certain number of closet Catholics who were looking for signs that this was a play reflecting their own beliefs in their own world, had to have held a certain number of quite committed. Protestants who would be looking for signs reinforcing their own point of view and a wide range of people who, you know, of whom Shakespeare may have included himself who really didn't know anymore what to believe, what was the truth, what was the fiction.
3: So how did Shakespeare and his fellows address this uniquely fractured audience? Stephen Mullaney believes that they did it by actually exploring the subjects that divided people.
1: Elizabethan theater seems to be designed not to smooth out those differences, but to call them up, to bring them out in some remarkable ways. It's a theater that's as interested in clarifying, of exposing the partly brushed over and covered over divisions that are still very, very powerfully existing. This is part of what this theatrical society I think, needed to think through. I think that's part of why people kept going to these theaters. I think that's why these theaters succeeded. I think all of Shakespeare's history plays are designed to elicit the differences among the audiences as much as to feel out where they regard themselves as akin to one another, and to encourage idiosyncratic reactions the plays are probing wounds in the social world of their audience as much as they're trying to heal them, as much as they're trying to provide the audience with a shared aesthetic experience. They're doing that too. I don't want to downplay that. They're working sometimes toward wonderful and hard-won moments of communal unity. With the audience but this theater is interested in exploring the ways in which its audience is no longer sure how to feel about what they're watching as well as what to think about it or what to believe.
3: Stephen Mullaney and Paul Yacknin argue that the commercial theater that developed in England in the late 16th and early 17th century assisted at the birth of a new kind of public. It did this by addressing its spectators as people whose opinions mattered. And it did it by making itself a flexible instrument for the exploration of a suddenly diverse and plural social landscape in which consensus could no longer be assumed. Divisive questions were displaced into a fictional realm from which the audience could feel a certain detachment, even while identifying with different perspectives. And in this way, the theater reduced supercharged emotions, creating a possibility of discussion and exchange. But the theater public was just one public among many that were developing at this time. There were publics for other arts, for the new sciences that were beginning to appear, for the many shades of religious opinion, and so on. The public, in Paul view, does not have a single shape or a uniform consistency. And here, he and his colleagues in the Making Publics project have challenged the classic definition of the public sphere put forward by German philosopher Jürgen Habermas in his book, The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere. Habermas argues that in the 18th century, there was a unitary public sphere, where opinions were exchanged and refined until finally the public could speak with one voice. Yaknan thinks that a single public sphere is a crucial animating ideal, but that in practice, the public is always a plural space. It's always made up of interwoven,
2: overlapping, competing publics. Now the idea of the public sphere or the public is hugely important. And we've had this idea since antiquity. And one thing that I think is that publics grow by appealing to this idea. And publics matter and operate by appealing to this idea. Because a theatrical public, Shakespeare, as one example. Because it's a business in the first place, it wants to live, it wants to expand. And Shakespeare also, because he's an ambitious artist, wants to describe the world in terms of theater and playing, as he does it all the time. And to some degree, his account of the world gains a kind of traction in in the world itself. And so the theatrical public actually bids for some kind of hegemony, some kind of dominance in the discursive world of English society. And in the 18th century, Shakespeare actually becomes a major public figure. He has to wait a long time after his death to do that. But he he does become a kind of currency of public discussion. And so this idea that public discourse speaks, addresses the public, though in fact its real addressee is sectoral, seems to me a very important way of understanding how the idea of the public makes possible the growth of publics. And there's a kind of competition within the broader discursive world for the what kind of language has authority. If we think about 17th century England, an uh, important period for theatre, an important period for religious controversy, an important period for the rise of a scientific public, which develops into the Royal Academy. If we think which of those three has developed a kind of purchase on what, what counts as publicly authoritative language, we can see that the scientists did better over the long term than did theologians or religious polemicists or playwrights. And so there's this wonderful and important competition among
3: publics. Paul Yackman wants to replace Jürgen Habermas's picture of a unified public sphere with an image of multiple publics each invokes the public good and may in fact advance it but each also pursues its own advantage Shakespeare has an interest in making all the world a stage publics compete Michael Bristol is a colleague of Paul Yakman's in the Making Publics project and professor emeritus of English at McGill. He has argued in an essay for a new book called Making Publics in Early Modern Europe that this competition is something that people were aware of at the time and that they felt as a loss as well as as a gain. This is one explanation, Bristol thinks, for what the early 17th century writer Robert Burton identified as an epidemic of melancholia during this period. Melancholia, like depression today, is a black mood that seems to exceed any available cause or explanation. Its prevalence, Bristol thinks, had to do with the replacement of a communal society by a more fragmentary, and more individualized set of associations. He begins with a contemporary example of the kind of loss he is talking about.
4: When I wrote my first book, I used an electric typewriter, and then I had to take the manuscript to a a woman I knew who was the typist. She had enormous skills, and there was a social interaction there that I took care of, and she corrected some of my spelling mistakes, and it was just a very agreeable professional. And mutually respectful relationship, because I knew that she had skills that I didn't have. I needed her abilities uh, to get that manuscript ready for the press. Next time I wrote a book, a few years later, I had a computer. That was the end of that. So there was a loss in there. So I think what's happening, and I was trying to get at with that essay, is some way we have to understand people are losing that vivid sense of belonging. Some of it has to do with the acceleration of a market economy and the kind of dislocating things that happen. But you know all of it is happening in the background. People are not necessarily able to bring it into conscious focus for reflection and consideration. You just have a kind of vague feeling that there was something and now it's gone. can't even maybe say what it is. That's what the melancholia is a sense of loss that can't be specified or particularized, but is very keenly felt. Certainly in the early modern period, there's quite a bit of evidence for a kind of pervasive, a preoccupation with melancholia. Some people have said, well, it's a trend or it's a fad or it's just a flavor of the month, but I I don't really think so. I think it really cuts deeper than that. You know, that feeling of Sadness, I guess, is the best way to think about it. What I'm arguing in that essay is it's it's the starting point for a new kind of subject position, for a new kind of sense of, a new kind of self-understanding, a new kind of idea of what personhood really amounts to, that you really are radically on your own, all by yourself. It's scary to feel that way. and. Uh, Of course, if you use a modern technology, use a a concordance, an online concordance to Shakespeare and search on melancholy in Shakespeare, it's in every play. And almost every play has at least one character who's singled out as the melancholy one. And it's singled out in a kind of ambivalent way that on one level is their sort of, what's wrong with you man? Smarten up, you know, it's just a bummer to be like that. And on another level, the melancholy guy is, the, is Shakespeare. He's the one who says, who, who, you know, won't accept the consoling illusion that's being dished out by the well-adjusted <laughs> people.
3: Michael Bristol thinks that people in Shakespeare's time, and Shakespeare himself, felt a keen sense of existential loss. So, does this view of Shakespeare as the melancholy guy contradict Paul Yacton's earlier account of Shakespeare as the exponent of a new and liberating type of publicity in which the private is given public voice? I think they are rather two sides of the same coin. People were set free to form publics according to their tastes and inclinations and to advance their particular account of the public good. But this invitation to compete, as Paul Yachman says, for traction in the public world, must also have been felt as uprooting and alienation. The age looked in two directions. Ahead to a not yet achieved sense of the public as a conglomerate of private voices, and back to a more corporate and communal order in which the good was a given I'll continue my exploration of this ambivalent age in the next episode of this series, when another Shakespeare scholar, Lena Orlin, will look further into the relations between the private and the public in Tudor England.
0: On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public, by David Cayley. His series continues next week. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.